find something that interests you, that motivates you, right? And and dig in, dig in, dig in, dig in, and grow your passion. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Jean-Michel, uh, very well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Sylvan, what an honor to be on this show. You know, when I was 20, I probably expected to make my life in such a way to be on a show like yours. So thank you very much for having me, especially in these troubling and changing and difficult times. Uh, thanks for having me. All the audience, thanks for listening. Hope you're going to enjoy uh, what we have to share. I'm sure there's an exciting story ahead of us, and we are super excited to have you on the show. Your claim to fame is basically the director of engineering at Day Software. Um, today, you are the vice president of engineering at Adobe. Uh, we talk about the exit of Day Software to Adobe, but first we want to talk about your personal background. So that will take us back to 1987. You were in the US with your family and worked a minimum wage job at Radio Shack in New Jersey. And I just want to know how has, you know, working a minimum wage job shaped you? What have you learned there? How has that shaped and also changed you? Thanks for asking the question. I think it is interesting, right? So I was at high school, uh, sort of the Swiss kid there. And then I went to uh, do the uh, worked around in different jobs. And I spent quite some time at uh, Radio Shack. Uh, Radio Shack, for those who don't know, uh, that's an electronic store, but that also sells uh, resistors and capacitors. Uh, for those that may remember in Basel, there was a shop called Griedel. Now everything is online, doesn't exist anymore. And what was interesting, there were a couple of learnings there, Silan. I think, um, first of all, I was on commission. I think it was six something percent of, uh, of, of what we were selling or minimum wage, whichever was more on an average of two weeks. And so if you had the Monday morning shift, you were stocking it. And so you were not doing a lot of uh, selling. Another experience that I think was insightful or was a visceral understanding was a, a colleague of mine when I was new told me, you know, Jean-Michel, if you have any questions, don't worry, come to me and I will help you. And, uh, you know, there were these resistors that were like 99 cents a piece. Uh, if you, I did the calculation in one of those moments to, 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 to calculate if I write up the receipt, this is written up by hand so you could do marketing with them, um, that I couldn't write up the receipts fast enough to get above minimum wage if I would be selling resistors and capacitors all two weeks long. So <laughs> this person comes to me. Uh, I still remember his name. I don't, won't call him out. Uh, did a good job. And he said, you know, I'll help you. And uh, the big sales were the alarm systems or the phones. Phones in those days, you have to imagine, that was a car battery with a handle on it and the two-meter antenna on top of it. Or a computer system, a TRS-80, Trash-80. Uh, they were $1,000. That was a good sale. A couple of those, and you made your two weeks. So he came to me. He said, explain, sure, have questions. Customer came in. Sure, I went to him. And then the customer talked to me, then went to him. And at the end, he closed the sale. Well, commission goes to the person who closes the sale. Ka-ching! First time, last time, but that's when you understand sort of what closing sales are. Or another example, which I think is a learning for me, is I was talking to a customer and uh, we spent half an hour, 20 minutes uh, with a customer and then they walked out again. 
And in the trainings, we had some video cassettes. They said every customer who comes in wants to buy. It's your job to convince the emotion that you close them to actually sell them. And in this moment, my boss came to me who had another one and a half or two or three percent on top of my commission. I said, Jean-Michel, you see that customer walking out the door? That is your salary working out the door. And so I think these are very visceral uh, experiences for, um, for, for a young person and sort of, you know, what gives. Absolutely. You already learned selling basically early on in your life, right? Because you grew up in a family business uh, where carpets were sold. So did you already have that uh, in, in your genetics uh, to learn how to sell and to be able to be a good salesman? I'm not sure if I had it there. I lived it. Uh, so I think there was a whole floor of the house dedicated. I think that was a different type of sale. Uh, that was mm -hmm. a sale by appointment. And so you had like a captured audience. And the probability that the customer was going to end up at least with a selection where they would buy something was very high. I think what Radio Shack brought to me was a sale that wasn't so imminent, right? That it was optional. The person could walk out and you have to close and you have to convince them. Uh, right. Another thing, after 20 minutes, uh, because the sales were smaller, you had to say, uh, ma'am, uh, how would you like to pay for this? Cash or credit card, right? <laughs> Get to a close. So I think some of the relationship pieces were learned from the family, but sort of the closing or, or getting to the landing the value with the customer in the moment when they're ready to land it, I think that was a takeaway for me. And obviously that I wanted to do something else with my life than just uh, work at minimum wages or filling out forms uh, by hand. Sure. So. You then actually decided to go back to Switzerland for your studies. Uh, first of all, the question, why going back to Switzerland and not staying in the US with your experience and probably also the social circle and the network that you already built there? Hey, well, it's cheaper. Uh, so <laughs> the economics are significantly better. And I think if you look at uh, ATR or EPFL, uh, I'm not sure where there are today, but in those days, they were in the top 20 schools worldwide uh, in, in some of those ratings. So I think you get uh, in Switzerland and we have a very good educational system and uh, it is a heck of a lot cheaper. I think uh, family situation also played a role, but I think the economics of it, right? Uh, if you wanted to get that level of, of education in the U.S., uh, I would have had to sell a heck of a lot more of those uh, batteries and uh, uh, to finance it, right? Those phone, right. cell phones and stuff like that. <laughs> Fair point. And then you decided to study computer science at both ETH and also EPFL. Why did you decide to go for these studies and not something else? What was so appealing to you to go for computer science? Interesting. I think there's two pieces. First of all, that computers, if I don't understand something, that motivates me, right? I, I want to understand. And I, I, I had, uh, in the US before I studied, I, I started up a bulletin board system, brought that into Switzerland, started up a bulletin board system there as well. But I, I was using them, I was programming with them, but I didn't truly understand it. And that's, uh, if I had, as I had the opportunity, um, I... Uh, I, I wanted to spend understanding that. Now, you know, I still want to understand geography and I do want to understand chemistry, but I ended up choosing that because that was sitting in front of me. And sort of I started in Zurich, uh, for those that can, Alors, l'EPFL was sort of a good alternative. My wife wanted to go there. Uh, and uh, I liked the... Uh, 
connection with the industry that the EPFL had. Got it. Yep. I think that's a very valid point. So you basically follow your personal interest, what you are curious about to find out and better understand in really deep understanding that you wanted to develop there. Yep, absolutely. And I think this is also important for everyone listening here. I think find something that interests you, that motivates you, right? And and dig in, dig in, dig in, dig in and grow your passion. How did you realize that you arrived at the right spot? Like, did that feel any different from other things that you've tried? Or were you always just, you know, very high energy and you could go basically after whatever you wanted because you had a very high energy level? So my question is basically, how did you find what you were really passionate and curious about? What helped you to find that out? I think that's a very good question, because if I remember what, when I was starting out my career, I also heard that advice, go after what you're passionate. It's like, OK, but, you know, I like a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> so I think it is partially also chance or it is um, what I called forced luck, meaning that you have a multitude of choices and just go after a couple of them. Right. Find out, be open for them, be open also to switch and try something else. I don't think there is a perfect answer, uh, uh, but I think it is something. Why, why I think do people say go after what you're passionate because you'll be spending a lot of time on it. And if you're just doing it to get the job done, you won't be as good than if you're actually interested, motivated and you're curious and it, it gives you something back. Um, but when I was at this age, I heard the same at this stage in my career, I heard the same feedback and I was asking myself, well, now, what do I choose? What do I do? Right. This was like, and I don't, I wouldn't stress about it. I, I would do a conscious choice. I wouldn't stress about it, but I would pick one and just go for it and try it out. And if it fits, if the shoe fits, cool, keep on doing it. If not, then go get a pair of sandals uh, and go All after right. them. Right. Absolutely. There's a nice uh, quote from Naval Ravikant, the famous uh, business angel investor from the US. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something similar to when you are hitting the sweet spot, it feels like play to you, but like a lot of work to others. And that's probably the sweet spot that you might be aiming for. So something that feels like play to you, but is a huge effort for others. That's probably the sweet spot you want to go for. I couldn't have said it better. I think it, it just feel, it, it doesn't feel like a chore, right? You just, you just like yeah. doing it. You get up in the morning and say, oh, what else? Right? What can I do? How can I? And so that's cool. Exactly. So finishing or wrapping up your educational part, you then actually went back to the US. So you did an MBA uh, at the University of California. And I wonder, so before you said, hey, it's uh, too expensive to, to study in the US, and then you actually went back. Did you make a lot of money in between or why did you decide to go back? Oh, good question. <laughs> the um, uh, A lot of money, no, the first year we couldn't even afford to fly back to Switzerland. Uh, and and uh, so I think you we started out and we were scrappy. Uh, but I think the uh, it did improve dynamically. Um, the... This, we had the um, education reimbursement program from uh, many large companies, including Adobe, where I'm at right now, but many companies have that. And I was able to do that, keep on working and do that part time. That was also one of the choices why I chose Berkeley, because they did pick you up in, um, in, in a large 50 person car down in the South Bay. I think Krispy Kreme is there right now. Um, and uh, they drove you up. And so that was, uh, you didn't have to commute. You were able to do some project work with your colleagues. I think the logistics of it were, I think the piece that amazed me the most, I think doing the 
the NBA itself, you had Greenspan come in and talk. You had John Durr uh, that you could talk to and have an, inter you know, he was presenting and afterwards you could have an interaction. So you're in the middle of things and that was very exciting. I can imagine, yeah. I, I, that actually shaped you in an additional way, right? You had the top schools from Switzerland, actually both top schools, and then you went to another top school in the U.S. I also wonder, now, the MBA part is actually more of the business education before you had the technical ed education. So is it actually possible to be both a tech guy but also a business or a, a marketing and sales guy? I, 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 this is a question I think I've, I've been thinking about a lot. We, we chatted about this earlier, and I, I think for me, it's natural, right? I, I, I don't know. And for me, I couldn't, um, I couldn't be one without the other. Uh, and so I, I think for me, it's possible. I do think that, you know, I, um, you have your strengths and weaknesses, but I think it's a combination of actually doing innovation that lands in a business context that makes the innovation really, the engineering really interesting for me, creating that product that, understanding the business problem and the business value and then being able to not just solve the point problem but help the customer in the point problem and then go back and reflect what is the what is the fundamental pattern and so you're you're helping you're at a customer you're hearing what is you you find them a tactical a, a solution in the now i don't want to call it you know it, it is it's stable and it helps and it works for them but then go back and you reflect what could we do to actually change this by an order of magnitude. And I think I need the business exposure uh, personally and for me and the team to actually then find the, the, the fundamental innovation. And so I think those are exciting. And I do think that even, you know, if, if, uh, if young entrepreneurs are listening here, do know your numbers, right? Even if you're just a scientist, and I, the numbers do matter, right? And so I think you need... At least if, if you need both, a, a little bit of both, at least a little bit, right? If it's not your passion, do understand what a P&L is, right? Because the cash flow will right. burn out if you if you don't. Absolutely. Well, it's also interesting, you know, if you think about startups in the early days, there you need to have someone who can actually build the product, but also someone who can actually sell it. And now what gets really powerful is what you seem to have done if you combine both and you're actually capable of doing both, of building products, but also of selling them, then that's like a whole different level. And I think that's really, really interesting to have this mix that, that you have acquired here with your MBA on top of that. And that is just so powerful. Silen, you're very gracious. You know, it's, it's just me, right? So I don't, yeah, it, it works for me. So uh, anyone who wants to try it, feel free. Uh, <laughs> The, I, I, but I do think that I think it makes it exciting, right? It makes it truly exciting that you, you are in front of the customer, you're trying, you're iterating on your pitch and you go home and you try and see, you look at their facial expression and you see didn't quite land it. Why not? Especially I'm not, uh, you know, being an engineer, I'm not sort of the, 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 the best marketeer, but I think it's, it's this interaction that, uh, that lands it. And I think that, that, I think that helps innovation. Uh, and I think all innovation that I've seen is through iteration and through planning it with right. with the business, right? With the business value at the end. Right. And also, you know, just observing your energy level when talking about that, I think one can really tell that you are in the sweet spot. <laughs> Thanks a lot. So, I, I, I'm happy. I'm good. <laughs> that's all that counts in the end. So let's also focus on, on your professional career after the educational part. Um, in 2000, you joined Embrace Networks. Um, 
you were the director of software engineering there. Um, I think looking at Crunchbase, uh, the company raised about 28.5 million in a Series B round. So I want to know from you, first of all, why did you join Embrace Networks in the first place and not start your own company in the US, for example, as an alter alternative? I, that's a good question. I, I did already start uh, my own service, uh, a bulletin board in the in '88 earlier, and I that was sort of like an internet website with a modem, a bulletin board system. And so I had that, and I ended up decided not to do that, and then start the studies because I didn't get the scale I wanted. Right. So I could. I had good ideas at the point I was offering a competitive offer. So you, you could find the solutions, but I didn't get the scale I wanted. And so I, I did want to try out while in the US. I wanted to not just sit next to the startup life, but be part of it. We did, uh, through the MBA, had the opportunity to find something ourselves, but I was concerned to get to the scale fast enough. So then I was looking around, what is the, be what is the best mix? And Embrace was interesting. And, you know, it was going after the Internet of Things. It was just a couple of years too early. Um, so we had um, a very interesting proposition. And, you know, today, Internet of Things, obviously, right? Everybody knows about it. Uh, it's, it's almost passe, but there it was too early. Uh, so, but it was exciting at the time. Absolutely. And you seem to be a very eager learner. So what did you learn there during your time at Embrace Networks? What did it take away from your time there? I, I think um, going with the market, right? Um, so while the concept of Internet of Things is a valid concept, and while building the product for the Internet of Things was a valid product, um, the market wasn't quite ready for it. And so the timing of, of, of the market, the timing of the customer's appetite, and but, you know, in hindsight, I don't think you, it could have switched, right? It could have been that company that actually flipped the coin and would have sort of got the ball in the rolling. I think the complexities may have just been a little bit too high or sort of the dynamics or that one deal and that next deal didn't quite come Um but I had a lot more awareness about the market dynamics afterwards and validating them or, or validating my hypothesis with the market uh, more than what I would have done, be what I did before. Right. Yeah. The, the Swiss Printer founder, Alain Shiar, he always mentions that even in the episode that the was the first one on the podcast, timing is probably the, one of the most underrated factors of success for a startup company. So in that regard, my question is, can you actually influence the timing to a certain degree or can you just try to understand it and then accept it or change your plan, but not really influence it in, in any positive or negative way? I, I do think you can influence it, but you need, I, I believe you need to understand it and you need to play it, right? It, it needs to be a lot more conscious. Uh, so it's a, if you look at what we're doing right now at Adobe, we are we're doing what no one will come to that afterward. We're doing what no one else has done before. There is no timing for changing the industry that we're doing, but we're doing it. Um, if, if you look at sort of uh, Roy writing uh, his REST thesis, he was a, a, a friend of mine and a peer at, uh, at the day in Adobe who wrote the HTTP protocol, right? If, if you think about there is no perfect time, but you can influence it. And being aware of the market dynamics and how you take what is there, what dynamics do you have, and you build your wave with that. I think that is how I would say it. I don't think you're, it. If, if you wait for, for the timing to be obvious, 
you may already be a, a round two or round three player, which has also its attractions, but it's uh, being aware of it. Are you the first one? What do you need to do if you're the first one? If you're, if you're, uh, if you see the timing and you're a second or third player, how do you, how do you approach it from there? I think there's different game plans um, for different stages of the timing. And you really need to praise this, this or practice this awareness of where's the market, where are you, uh, also in relation to the other players around there. I think that's a really great uh, key takeaway here. Now, let's also focus on the time after Embrace Networks. You actually left before the company had its exit and was sold. So why did you decide to leave? Um, I think it's a combination of factors. Um, the... Personal factors were probably the most important ones. I'm happily married uh, for, I don't know, 25 years now. And uh, lucky dad of four kids. And at that time, that was before the kids. So I had the happily married portion, but not the kids. And we wanted that. Um, and I think it was a combination also of seeing that the company, the realization that the company was early. Yeah, and got it. But I, I do think it's probably about 80% the family reasons and 20% um, the sort of the, 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 uh, the, the environment situation. Exactly. And then you joined Day Software as your next move uh, in Switzerland. Maybe you have to give a bit more com uh, context here first. So Day Software is a Swiss-based company that designs or designed, still does, web applications and manages content for global companies. And... Before you actually joined in 2000, Day Software went public. That's like massive for a Swiss company, I would say. You know, having done this startup path and then doing an IPO, I hope we see more of that uh, in the future, hopefully. But maybe just to give the context of what made the decision for you to say, hey, I want to go and work at Day. How did that happen that you ended up at Day and went back to Switzerland? So the go back to Switzerland, I think that was uh, the, the family driver. And then having tasted the, um, the I, 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 earlier I did work at Siemens, so I knew sort of a, a large company uh, environment here in Switzerland, but I was looking for a, a younger, more dynamic company. And there, I actually talked to probably all of them on the Swiss new market, it was called at that point, uh, which was sort of the, 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 the hot market. And I think for day software was the one that click the best. And actually, we were flexible to be anywhere in Switzerland. And But having seen Day, we ended up choosing Basel. And I'm originally from Basel, so that's a coincidence. But I think the causality was because of Day. And I think if you look at Day, they were solving, or and we are still are solving an interesting problem. We are what is that? With, we are trying to sell a service or, or software at that point, and now it's a service that tries to give a, 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 a the inherent premise of that is that you can have the same or similar service for multiple customers into an environment where customers want a unique experience so if if you look at sort of some of our customers the largest brands that are out there i don't know uh, pick any brand you wish and then pick sort of their competitor um, they want to differentiate themselves through the experience because what they want to do with a digital experience is they want to leave an impression the way, what I usually say, experiences are what stays when you close your mind and you shut off your phone, right? What stays with you or the action you take before you close that, that is what, what is a digital experience. And digital experiences talk through emotions, imagery, video, stories. Um, and here's a company that's trying to 
make that repetitive. But then if it is repetitive, right, have a tool, have a service that everyone uses. But if it is repetitive, it's not uniquely differentiated. So that's like a conundrum in and of itself, right? It's, it's like trying to solve opposing objectives at the same time. And so that's, that's intellectually interesting. Uh, and in the end, I guess that's uh, what's then really appealing to accept the job there, right? Because you have intellectual stimulation for a person as you, probably also the business and technology part combined again, and you can learn and develop. That's what you were looking for. Absolutely. I, I have my hair stand up just thinking about it. I think it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's viscerally interesting. And, and it is, uh, you know, I've been doing this content thing now for 20 years. And I still think I, I can see how to make it yet even better for our customers. The product that we just launched earlier this year, I'm so excited about it because it is fundamentally changing the industry, right? So been at it for 20 years and now I grokked it how, or the team and I grokked it how to go to the next level. And it is it is sort of a, a testimony to the fundamental innovation or to what I said before, right? Understanding it at, at its source and if if... If you're just adding a bit and piece there, that is okay, but that doesn't give you long differentiation or long value. Right. And they had the opportunity to create that. It was it was content management, so managing the content for creating uh, digital experiences, experiences that lead to a business objective. If you're a government that you can reach your uh, um, inhabitants, that you can provide your services if in, in a way w which is nice which is good effective if you're a school how to deliver your uh your 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 content your training if 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 you're a, if you're a brand how to deliver your message and how something stays with you right connect emotionally and be different for every customer but still have the similar service that's that's a it's cool it's interesting this energy it's really so remarkable and i wish that there are more people out there that really share this passion this is so cool to watch and observe really <laughs> Thank you. So let's also look back, you know, to the timing again, when we said when you joined the, the IPO, but around the 2000, there was also something else happening, right? The dot-com bubble basically hit and or burst actually uh, shortly after you joined Day. So can you walk us through how this has affected you, but also the company, of course? So what, what happened with Day and the dot-com bubble? Yeah, yeah, sure. Interesting. And if you talk about timing, that was poor timing on my part because I joined after the IPO. But, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm still having, I'm still able to sort of create uh, awesome services with the team. So that's a, um, that's exciting. I, th I think that at the time when the dot, what would the IPO actually happened, I don't remember exactly, but two, three days after the crash started. And so if you think about timing, IPOs, for those that, that may not be in the, the details of it, but you have institutional investors who commit to buy some of the stock uh, and you actually do a roadshow with them before, right? So it's not everything gets thrown on the market on the first day, but you have some commitments um, already but, and then uh, commitments and uh, the institutional investors also want this because they do expect the new innovation to actually, uh, the new IPOs to produce uh, new innovation and new value as they become public. And so if you look at the timing, a couple of days after the market crash started, uh, that is like the perfect timing, right? That's if you want to time the apex. And I've been told that, you know, nobody can time the apex in, in markets. The, the, the day team actually uh, truly nailed it. Um, and there uh, are others that are locally who didn't quite nail it that much. But so that's an interesting story. 
um, at that point, sort of for timelines, I was still at Embrace. And we were then sort of after that trying to raise that round of money. And that's another, right? After the downside and everybody realized there's a crash, raising money in that environment is probably a similar to raising money right now with COVID, uh, right? Where everything is a little bit different. But there, everybody took a step back and said, hold on and did an extra round. But I think so from a timing for, for day software, I think that was interesting that they uh, went like, they went public just after that. They, they, they I don't remember, but it was a, it was a good hunk of change. Uh, so the 3rd of April, 2000 yes. was the exact date. Thanks, yeah. Zelan. You did your homework. Nice job. No, actually... Your colleague sent me the date. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Um, so I think that's an interesting. Then I joined after that, and I think we were still in the rise. We still had uh, uh, money. We still had open positions. We were hiring. So I was I was joining a growth company when I came right. back. Right, full fire intellectual problem that's here. Resources that are available, uh, all gung ho. Right. And then, well, you know. After that crash, sort of uh, people pull back from investing in the internet. Uh, I remember, I believe I had 14 open positions when I started that I was supposed to hire. I hired one person. He works still for us. Uh, uh, he's out of uh, near Sangalen uh, remotely. I'm not going to name his name, but he knows who he is. Um, and um, the... And then sort of uh, the rounds, the, the savings round started. And sort of first the open positions go away and then you go and I think we went through six or seven rounds of uh, reductions, uh, which is another interesting experience. Well, interesting. It's, it's, it's an experience. I'm happy. I have it and I don't want to, I'm not going to call for it again, uh, but it is a learning, uh, a learning experience. Right. So how do you handle these these layoffs? Because I can imagine that's very intense, especially also the way that you worked with your teams and your colleagues. You were all pretty close. You were like, uh, you know, really pushing each other, supporting. So letting go of people, that's insanely hard and difficult to do, I can imagine. I, absolutely. You're right. I think uh, change is hard. And if it impacts the livelihood of individuals, it's even harder. So it, these are people you know, you, you know whether they're married or you know whether they're what, what they're where they're living and what they need to pay. And so I think on the on the first two, with every change, you have denial, right? Do we have to do this? Um, and and then you go through it, and then you go into execution. And as you realize for execution, it's the human that starts to matter, right? And then you try to find solutions for the individuals. I was lucky, we were lucky that as a team, we were able to, we changed what we, part of it, the job that we were doing and part of it for those that we had to let go, we were able to find homes for them, right? So I, I, I took time, the Rolodex of me, of my friends, we started calling around. Uh, it, it, you know, it probably didn't have this change the world innovation approach, but it was going to pay the rent. And it was, you know, it, it was it was a good, they were, they were good jobs. And um, I think we did that up until the last round. And then we sat together and we, uh, something that's happening here now during the COVID days. And we said, what do we do, right? Uh, and actually the team, the remaining team decided that we'll take a salary reduction. We'll go to Kurzarbeit, uh, which is a Swiss uh, a speciality where, where the, 
for th those that are outside of Switzerland listening to this, where the um, uh, in unemployment insurance actually pays money while you're still employed for a certain amount of time in the ho if there is a chance for the business to pick up again. Um, but a lot of paperwork, a lot of effort, and everybody was willing to sort of take a pay cut uh, uh, to just keep on going. And we were counting the days, uh, days cash outstanding, days salary outstanding. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's a very, a very real cash situation. And on the other hand, a a very intimate person by person, people by people. Uh, trying to find a solution for each one of them. And then as a team, that was that luckily was the last one. After that, it started to pick up again. But even as a team deciding, okay, well, um, we want to stick together at at the at this last uh, core. I think having that feedback from a team, you know, and they all accepting to take pay cuts. Uh, some may, might even have suggested that on their own to really, you know, make the company survive and, and go through that together. I think that's a very strong sign of a, of a good company culture and the, the common mission that you onboarded everybody on. Um, in terms of runway, is there anything that you can share? Because I'm just curious, what does it mean if you're counting the cash? Like how much runway was still left in the extreme situations? Like were you worried about paying the, the salaries for the next month? Or was it more like, okay, we can survive six more months, but then we really need to see how was the situation in, in terms of how much, much oxygen did you still have in the company, basically? Luckily, you forget the, much of the hard times, right? <laughs> but I think the, Human the piece that I do remember is that we were looking at sort of if we had to terminate people, that we had enough cash to uh, to, to maintain the legal. So we were... the the. the, the 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 line or the break even the, the the burn down line that, that I was looking at was sort of the um uh the the time to actually be able to pay everybody out within the the full legal concept uh, so right. I think it's termination period plus I think we had two months at that point okay got it so I think it's just good for people to have a perspective on that so that's really helpful yeah. Another thing that, you know, that there, there are certain visions or also strategic objectives and goals that you want to achieve as a team that can really push you together and make you pull through that all together and actually, you know, get out stronger at the end of the tunnel, basically, if you go through something like that. So what importance had the strategic direction to really also align and keep the people motivated that you were still uh, able to, to keep at the company? I think the strategic direction was set up before and we stuck to it, right? Okay. We, uh, and for, we, we believe that we were, um, the big players, we were not a big player yet. So we were a fast follower. Uh, but especially in this environment of opposing requirements, of diametrically opposed requirements, I think that the Swiss culture happens to be an asset. Uh, um, and our objective was to produce a software at the time today, a service that helps our customers be more effective, more efficient, uh, to heighten content velocity. Uh, and at Adobe, we call it to change uh, the uh, the world through digital experiences. And it, that was that, that was our passion. We want we wanted to do something so that people could express their offering, their desire, their idea through the digital experience and have a lasting message. And we did that. We, we, we realized um, one of the founders, uh, David Neuschler, who is still with, uh, with Adobe today, um, 
he very quickly realized that even though every project is separate, there are some things that are the same uh, and started out a standardization effort across the industry. Because we realized that if you have multiple systems that you want to connect them together. Um, at that point, I already had written two standards. Uh, and we had, as I said, Roy, who wrote the HTTP standard and the URI. So I was happy for uh, Roy to be, his standards are a lot more popular than whatever I wrote. Uh, and so I've I, I been there, done that. And David uh, was just at the early on at deciding where to put that standard, where to put that technology. And he chose the, the Java, which was up and coming at that point. Um, and the, the, uh, as an API specification, JCR. And I think that was sort of a incarnation of that strategy, right? That we find an abstraction level that is true for the whole industry. That is the basis, that these are the base elements that every experience management, every experience wants to have be able to version it, wants to be able to search for it, wants to be able to identify. So there is these fundamental concepts. And then we articulate that through the standard. And then as you get to these hard times, you have something that the business understood it because we saw the value at the customers and the technologists understood it because we were driving this standard. Now, you don't need to have a standard to have a strategy on the technology side. It's just something that we happen to have had. And I think we stayed true through that idea to actually improve the world through doing more just providing our service, but sort of investing energy into um, a standardization that will make everybody uh, better because it's a good, we collaborated. There is many collaborations where they gave their input and we found a um, an abstraction that made the world, this is a bit cheesy, but it made the world a better place, right? Because it this complicated problem, we all came to an agreement what the right distribution of tasks was and what belongs in and what belongs out, which then makes it a lot more effective and efficient for the customers to choose a solution. And I think then as you look at the at the engineers, we knew we had that. We had that in our hands. We knew this was sort of good. We had the validation from the industry. You, you had the, the big boys that were flying into Basel to have the, the workshops on this. Uh, uh, it was one of the, the the only times that the W3C architecture group joined, uh, came to, to Europe, and that was in Basel, of all places. Uh, they just were here last year again, I think, which is the second time. So uh, you, you feel like as a, as a Swiss company, which is not selling cheese, nor watches, nor chocolate, you can, you can have an influence on the world stage. And I think that gives a passion, that gives a direction to the people that you can do something good and everybody that everybody was glued together to that to to that idea of making the world a better place by helping on the content management front and the experience management and that's exactly the setup that then also like pushes you through the hard and difficult times i think that's a, a wonderful explanation how you manage this so now for the second part of uh, the deep dive questions, I also want to know more about how you actually managed and built your teams, because you were not only responsible for the product management, but also for actually managing the team, which grew exponentially before, but then also after, obviously, uh, the dot-com uh, bubble hit. And I just want to know, how do you actually successfully manage an ever-expanding team? Do you have any best practices and tips to share how you build a, a successful team and also manage them? I'm not sure there is any magic. I think part of it is intuitive. Uh, but part of it, I think, is the respect for the individuals. 
I think what we're doing, uh, if probably for most of the folks that are listening here, is we're creating something of intellectual value. And the intellectual value uh, for us, it was it was uh, software and uh, online service. The intellectual value comes from the core of the person. So the people need access to infrastructure, right? Tooling, uh, that's the basis. But then they need access to um, the problem space. And in our case, customers um, and the customer situations. And the opportunity to reflect both on the immediate and on the long term. And I think if you have people who are motivated, intrinsically motivated by creating something, and you can give them that, that becomes a unique differentiator. It's unique that you actually have to, to, to do the job you need to do here, but you also have the space to think deeper, to take a step back. Uh, as I've, Some of the folks that work for me will remember this sentence. I tell them, take off a couple of hours, go outside, watch the clouds move. Let your brain take a step back out of the immediate and think about the important. Try and synthesize uh, what you have. Now, uh, the more advanced, the, the, the more experience you have, the more conscious you allocate your time to do that. But I think even in the beginning, it's clear that you're not just, you're, you're, you're trying to create something that is for longer, as well as sort of solving the immediacy of the situation that you have here. Again, the standards was an example I just mentioned. That's a long-term play. Mm -hmm. um, and then sort of uh, for, for, Managing, I think it's less about managing and more about leading. Sharing the passion, helping the individuals see that, see the opportunity, see the potential that's there. And or stand with them in, in stressful times as much as you can or get out of their way and let them do their job and give them cover. Uh, so I think depending on what it is, but I think it is, it is about sort of the production engine of what most of the companies that we have here in Switzerland or Silicon Valley is the intellect. And mm -hmm. the intellect works by enabling and uh, articulating the, the objective, the, the problem, or show, giving them access to the problem space and then letting the, letting the mind work and creating an environment. You know, right. sometimes it's also sort of, let's, you know, let's get it nailed. Uh, you do need results. But I think it's, it's finding that balance. But it is, I've, and I've gotten this as feedback, is the opportunity to actually create. That is... Um, that is valued and cherished. Nice. If I had to pick one thing on top of that, it's the, the sharing of the passion. Can you give us an example how you actually did that with your team? Because I think your passion is so impressive. So I also wonder, how do you share and probably also inject that in your team and your team members? I, I think it's different. If you're, if you're at a uh, in, in the early days, everybody knows everybody, and, and you you you're so close to each other that it just osmosis, right? Uh, and I think I don't think I, I was unique. I think it was everybody who had it, it. You know, you don't have to be extroverted to be passionate. We have some folks that are very uh, concentrated, but they are passionate about actually focusing on the process. So I think the passion was 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 ended up being common, and you joined this unit. Um, you, you wanted to have motivation. You need to have the minimum background to actually not have your uh, feet kicked away from under you while you while you landed, and then you were just dragged along. And I think for the then as you go 
to you, you move forward to now at uh, at Adobe when we have a larger team and it's globally distributed. I think the tools are different. And knowing what I know now, I probably would apply some of those tools earlier as well. And I took a book out of the Amazon and uh, it's the six pagers. And I tried to articulate to do what no one has done before. Most everyone, to my knowledge, in the experience management has done experience management the way it's been done for the last 30 years, has built the solutions. And there's a couple of players out there. We're obviously the best. But um, the um, um, and don't take my word for it. Take the analysts for it. We've been rocking it for years and years or the partners. But uh, anyway, it sounds weird when I have to say it. Um, the um, um, and, and we reflected even being at the top right of these quadrants, the customers love business success. Can't we do better? And that's one of those moments, right? You go back and you reflect. Uh, we looked at sort of other patterns in the industry, looked at the transformation of the car industry. Uh, what did they do, right? Early on, uh, uh, the black and white imagery, right? You see them hammer out the individual car pieces. Then sort of uh, the 50s, you have semi-automated. And if you now look at the more modern, it's fully automated. Hmm, inspiration. What would that mean for us? Uh, and then you have another. So automation is one mega trend. I think the other, uh, and, and in our situation with the cloud, there is new opportunities for that automation. And then there is artificial intelligence. And so we, we sat back and reflected, imagine we could be like one of the consumer cloud products while allowing the extensibility of enterprise. And again, that's an opposing, right? It's diametrally opposed um, requirements. And, and you see people try and approach it. They go one way, but they, they cut off the other piece, right? They don't allow both flexibilities to be there. And to share that passion, what we reflected on, we did some research. Uh, we had uh, looked at what blocks do we have that are absolute blocks, where everybody who looks at it says, well, uh, you know, I can't believe, unbelievable. And so we got some of those blocks. And then as we had, uh, we saw mm, there could be there could be a small funken, a small spark at the end of the tunnel. We could actually reach it. Sat down, wrote a six-pager, articulating the problem space, articulating the opportunity. And then share that out throughout the whole team. And ask them, again, to do a fundamental change. And so I asked, uh, we're a couple of hundred people who worldwide that they change the way they've been working. And they did in the past, you know, you had developer develop, pass it over to QE, who was testing it, pass it over to operations, who was running it. And then operations had a problem, passed the problem back. QE didn't test it. QE passed it back to developers. You didn't develop it. And that went, and the iteration speed was very slow. And in the cloud, you have the, op you have the opportunity to be all the at once. You are the person who writes it. You are the person who tests it. You are the person who takes up the call on call uh, on the weekend if it actually messed up. And that motivates you not to mess up. And so we put that concept into play. We described it. We did a pilot. Uh, we shared experiences. We ran defense. We gave the engineers time to actually make their code so that they wouldn't have to worry waking up on the weekend. And we pushed that in the cloud and out comes an innovation that, as I said, no one else has done in the industry before. And we've, we're able now at a 
enterprise level with with 100% uptime for at least periods of time. We do have bugs every now and then, but it's actually for long periods of time, 100%. And we can keep on pushing changes out like you could never do for an on-premise install, like you could never do before. And that's really cool. And so back to how do you make that change? How do you share that passion? You get the unbelievable pieces that are truly, well, that will never work out of the way, and then articulate that and thought it through through a, a six-pager in my case, and then each of the individual leaders bubbled it down to them, shared it with a team, and asked them to come along on that journey of transformation. Wow. Awesome story. Don't you just hate it when you listen to a really great podcast, but you have no one to talk to about it? We do too. And that's why you should give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. The wider our reach is, the more Swisspreneur fans will pop up all around you. Now, I also wonder, how do you actually find the people in the first place? So you also need to find talent, right? Were there any unexpected tips or sources where you actually got your talent from that you then hired to join your company? I, good question. I think ta- you know, talent is key. Uh, um, and I think... Um, you also have different sources at different levels. I think early on, what we did is we looked on finding talent and selecting talent. Finding talent, we actually looked at people who were already doing part of the work that we wanted them to do, and we got visibility into it. And so um, me having done some work on Linux, uh, Roy having founded the Apache Software Foundation, we had a connection to... um, to open source. And you find people who were in their free time or maybe part time were already coding on the stuff or in, in a, in a doesn't have to be on the stuff, but the work that they delivered was already demonstrating stuff that we said, hmm, that's cool. And so that was a good source. I think the, the social uh, medias weren't uh, and networks weren't quite as evolved at that point in time. And so you had to use that. I think now you have a lot more sources where you see where do people express their passion, right? Um, and then we were lucky ones giving them actually a day job uh, at, you know, actually a day job and the job during the day um, the, um, that, that allowed them to express their passion. And then I think comes to talent selection. There is a portion intuition but we asked ourselves, how could we actually make it a bit fairer, make it a bit less arbitrary? And there is a standard of things that you have multiple people look at them. You have a similar set of questions. Uh, uh, what we do look for is motivation. But then again, if you spend your weekends coding, you're somewhat motivated, right? So I think that, but you need motivation. Uh, you, you need to get to want to do something, right? And then you need a base, uh, a base knowledge, so that you can actually keep up with with the flow. Um, but besides that, I have people with a psychology degree. I have folks with a, with a biology degree, right? I think that I'm I'm a little bit less. Uh, I have folks that don't have a degree. I'm a little bit less um, fixated on the actual degree. But I do want the people to then demonstrate it. But there's and the degree is an easy way to actually demonstrate a certain way. And then as it comes to the selection, what we did is we for the for the technologists, we asked them to actually provide a we asked, we gave them a coding example. And it's actually the same question for the last 20 years. And uh, we did add variants for different languages and different skill sets. Uh, so we have variants, but and what that does is it 
it looks at the output of the work. So if you if you are looking for a photographer for your wedding or for your special day, and you could ask them, okay, make me, but show me your your portfolio, show me what you would do with an animal in motion on a sundown, right? So you have you have a, a question, a formulation, but it's relatively open, and then what the artist does with it, like what they do in code, will. Um, illustrate you, you immediately see the technique right uh, was it was it sort of with um, uh, a blurry uh, old gen iphone or was it with a mirror camera spiegelreflex uh, that that it was done or in in the photography analogy or you see if if you watch it you actually see their seniority or what they've done but you also see the interpretation what did they leave out what they put in because it's a it's an open question and so we use that for selection and we're still using it um out there but i think finding talent back to your question, you first need to find them before you can select them, um, is about ideally finding those who are already in one way or another demonstrating a passion in it. And it doesn't have to be your domain, but it is a passion in the type of work you expect them to do, right? The type of thing, you know, so that you can give them a happy path or the um, where, where they feel like it's not a chore, but it's sort of fulfillment what they're going to get. I think that's fantastic. You know, accessing platforms or communities where people that you're looking for in that space are already active in, are, are really living their passion, and then you give them a job to live that passion. I think that's wonderful takeaway to really uh, think about that and ask yourself, where's your platform? Where's your community for the space that you're occupying with your company? Really wonderful tip. Now, let's fast forward a bit. Let's go to 2010. Adobe acquires DaySoftware for $214 million. Please walk us through the exit. How did that happen? Um, such a deal, especially by such a big and well-known company as Adobe is, um, doesn't just happen overnight. So please walk us through the deal, how it happened and how it was to be part of that. Sure, I'd love to. I think we were now sort of earlier, uh, you asked sort of about the 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 bust. Here we were on the uptake, right? We were doing really, really well. I think uh, business was has come back and people realized that the digital channels more than ever were important. And we were providing a, a solution that helps customers get the content velocity, get the right message to the right person in the right time. I was just, we were booming. Um, uh, we also had uh, new leadership come in uh, that was here. So we were just doing really well. Um, we did realize that the timing to take this energy and to ride this wave, we could get a lot more stuff on the ground if we had a bigger distribution channel. And so that was a realization that we had as a team uh, and, and just sort of uh, exploding at that level that we saw the opportunity or, you know, at the, that, that wave that was out there that was already happening in the numbers. I think we at one point we were the fastest rising stock of all of Europe uh, before that. And so I think as we were riding that wave, we realized, what do we do to actually, right, to, to, to take advantage of this dynamic, this market dynamic? And so scaling out was uh, sort of then one of the options that we had internally, either and there was an internal option and there was through partners. And then as you're looking at it, we also looked at what would be a good partner. Um, and being in the experience business, Adobe with their, what today is called Creative Cloud, was a beautiful opportunity. 
And we saw that then. And I just asked a question in preparation of this. Is it just me? Or I asked a couple of folks that were there. And actually, all of the people that work for me, minus two, uh, are still with me for 10 years ago. And the ones that I asked said, you know, it was the right move. And if you can say 10 years after you were acquired, it's the right move. You know, that's... And, and I also know that from... Um, uh, the, 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 the folks that were part involved in the decision process, they're saying, you know, this was a great move. So I think if both parties 10 years afterwards said this was a great move, I think this, that was good. Now, we didn't have that 10-year vision at that point, but it just felt right, right? It felt like to, to, to deliver on our objective, to help our customers get their individualized message across, but in a systemic solution that gets the economies of scale to them so that the, the each enterprise, each government's uh, cost for getting the message share, sort of their their velocity with which they can get to the people who want what they have, right, to connect that. Um, Adobe was the perfect partner from a product mix, but also from a corporate culture. Um, the two founders, uh, engineers, uh, our CEO, Shantanu, uh, has an engineering background. So very product oriented, very value generating oriented. And I mean, take a look at the stock price, right? Uh, the Adobe stock price has been doing very well. Uh, I think we're, I don't know where we're at. Um, uh, I think at the time of acquisition, we were at 30 and it, it, it anyway, it exploded from there. Anyone that listened to the podcast, take a look at the stock price. And um, I think, <laughs> and we had the opportunity, the good case that Adobe actually already was a customer of ours. So they were already using our product and we were already working with them for the adobe.com site itself. And adobe.com, to give you an idea, is is you have 1% to 3% of the daily internet traffic that goes through adobe.com. So, uh, you know, it's it's a nice a nice use case. Absolutely. Um, I, I still want to show you had them as clients. I think that really helped to also open the door. But you said like the plan, you know, made perfect sense. But at a certain point in time, you still had to convince them and onboard them and make sure that they actually also see it the same way as you did it, that they see, hey, this actually makes sense, so we do acquire you. How did you make that happen? They actually were in a transition. They just had launched, I think, a year before uh, a marketing cloud, a digital experience, uh, the experience cloud, we call it today. And they acquired Omniture, realizing that creating the artifact, creating the beautiful content that speaks to the heart, that sort of, you turn it off and you keep on remembering it. You have that emotion, you carry it with you, right? You want to go back, you, you want to close that deal, you want to buy that, you want to use that service, right? That that beautiful interaction. Um, looking at strategically, well, who was paying for that? It was marketing, right? It's the people. Uh, and so I think that's where the genesis came that, okay, if we just, if we add the experience cloud, if we add experience management um, with all its different tools, so the analysis of how, what worked, what didn't work, that was the Omnitrack acquisition, now Adobe um, Analytics, the ability to actually uh, give you the right content in the right moment to the right time in the right uh, context, whether you're a mobile whether you're on the web, whether you're walking by a digital screen uh, with us on the trains or, or at that one of the uh, uh, locations in store, out of store, 
all these touch points that you get the right information at the right time. They, they had, for instance, what we use Adobe Target. So they had a whole selection of pieces and Adobe Experience Manager was the piece where you manage it and delivered those experiences. And there is a lot more uh, Adobe Commerce to actually, which is Magento. You have a Campaign, which is email for marketeers, which was Neolane, a company uh, founded in Paris. Um, uh, we had uh, um, uh, Go Live out of Hamburg that was earlier. Um, so there's a lot of these technologies that were brought together. And I think that was a beautiful fit for the team and for us. And at the point when we were closing the deal, it was our job to see how our product would fit into that vision. How if you have the ability to help the customers assemble those experiences, both through integrating to their backend systems, through coding, through creating whichever experience they need and a different experience for everyone, but then also for the marketeer to have an easy ability to create that content, reuse that content, create new campaigns. I think that is what convinced them. And then as we were giving these stories, the people who were talking to us in the, in the M&A, they called up their friends uh, from the IT department and said, you know, that's what they're pitching. Is that true or not? And we actually had a good product, so uh, we got uh, more yeses than our competition. Who was we were? They were looking at um, a couple of options, and it ended up being two two rundowns. And uh, uh, I actually know the founder of the other company that was that was there, and they had a better. They the, the the acquiree had a good relationship, even a better relationship. They already had an. Uh, they used that product already in their product suite for selling it, not just using it, but selling that product. So it was at OEM. So we were, we were fighting uphill uh, internally to to replace them. And I, I remember I was uh, at the, at the pizzeria on the Rhine a couple of years before that, talking to that founder. And I still see him sitting in front of me. Um, it used to be called Pico Bello. It has a different name now uh, at the time. Um, but I still see him sitting in front of me. And then you're there in front of the acquiree Adobe, and right, you know, now you're you're head to head. But you know, well, it's a, it's a small industry, right? You tend to know right. each other. But so I think convincing with a value proposition that we had how it fit the strategy uh, was sort of the piece, and then uh, having the luck to have the internal reference. Um, but also, uh, we were a public company, so uh, valuation was already uh, more or less set, right? Uh, but we were very happy with it. And who can say 10 years after that, uh, uh, for me, uh, everybody but two are still on the team, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Another important point that you mentioned in a startup ticker interview was the importance of showing impressive figures, but also the importance of being successful in the U.S. market. So in what way did these two things also play a role in the acquisition of Adobe? I think especially in our market, that's especially in our market, I think the the services market, the software market in that time, now it's uh, the cloud services market. The US is the biggest market uh, out there. And if you want to fulfill on that opportunity, right? You have you see that growth, you see that hockey stick coming in, and you want to get to that marriage so you can deliver it. The the US companies need it works best if they already see that you already kicked the tires and you already have some base velocity. Especially in these acquisitions, the acquisitions are great in accelerating um, what already works. And given that for us the market is uh, is is the US and that that is a key market for us, I think it, it 
given the size of these companies, you already need to have a functioning support function, a functioning sales, a functioning uh, pre-sales, post-sales, services, partners. If you have that, they can help you scale it. But if, if, you, if you don't have anything there, creating it is a lot more difficult. I think mean, this is part of the reason why the companies grow through M&A, right? Because they do have it and then they can come in and scale it throughout the business. And that's where the partnership for us was awesome. And I'm seeing work a lot for uh, some of the other couple of dozen acquisitions that we have done. Awesome. And, and there, you know, you could all have also said, hey, we, we sell uh, and then we're basically done. What made you stay there? Of course, the scale is one part, but why did you stay on like more than 10 years now? Uh, that really, what kept you staying at Adobe? Uh, and why didn't they say, that's it, I'm done, I retire, or I do something else, start my own company whatsoever? What kept you there? It's not like you, I didn't reflect on that question, right? So it's not just a given that you have that. But I do think the, the culture of where we landed and the strategic alignment is the basis that allows us to continue to innovate at scale. And to take uh, an industry that's a couple of billion and actually have the audacity, say, with the innovation that we do, a couple of years down the road, it won't be the same. The efficiencies will be order of magnitude better. I think you need scale to do that. And there we have alignment of purpose. So alignment of strategy and alignment of purpose. Because if we can change by an order of magnitude, significant order of magnitude, the efficiency of a whole industry, that's cool. Um, so it's not just doing research, la pula, research for research sake. Uh, it, it, it's a different level of excitement if landing it with one customer, but actually doing something that can change the whole industry in and of itself. And I think from Adobe's perspective, that value generation sort of means that sort of you 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 have a you have a it's it's cross-supporting each other. And for for me at the create and the team creating the products for this, uh, I think it's it's fascinating because we can do things at a scale that you could not do otherwise. And so I think innovation at scale keep on innovating, keep on uh, seeing that next jump. Right. And then executing towards that. I think that is fascinating. Yeah, for me, it's like really the red line that you follow here, this intellectual stimulation, also the curiosity that you uh, get here to just learn new things and get to the next level. I think that's the impressive red line if I had to summarize your career in like one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> works for me but it is fascinating right for me it's like i i can get up i can be on a hike and i have an idea i write it up in my notes i go back on it i, I test it and now i have data right i can run it through thousands of customers i can i can formulate a hypothesis and i can validate and i think so it is it, I, I think it's the the juice of creativity uh, and creativity, if you then combine it sort of with value, creativity for some value and driving value and thinking about how do you do it in order of magnitude, not just, you know, it's nice to do it stepwise. Uh, it's nice to sort of make a faster horse, but doing a car every now and then to use the Ford analogy um, is, is nice as well, right? So that's sure. motivating. 
for me, not a challenge. And the team, sorry, Silvan. But I think it's important, right? I think it's, and then if you can go back to your, if you can formulate that and you can show the path in a six pager for a couple of hundred engineers, you can take them along with that passion and that opportunity. And that's cool. Absolutely. And one challenge, you already talked about the team and also the importance of culture. So one thing that is usually very tricky with acquisitions is how do you merge different teams and also different cultures and make sure that you don't kill your own culture with the acquisition. You seem to have managed that very well because you, you are all still on board for 10 years plus. Uh, also, with basically all of your teams uh, that were there. So it's it's like... From that perspective, how do you manage that and make sure that to not kill your culture, but actually successfully manage to get two different teams together? I, very for for good question. Um, I think similar to the timing question, consciously, very consciously. Um, and then you collect the experience across the team. And but I think generally, I would do it very consciously. Um, and we, I, I was lucky enough to actually have spent time in the U.S. We had other folks. So we sat down and we thought about what will be different. What will be the culture shock? Uh, as be, even before we announced it internally, we, we wrote down what will be the questions that they have and we prepared. Similar to as you would prepare for a presentation, right? You think about it very consciously before. And then help the team to see the opportunities uh, be very proactive. Or we were very proactive about, very conscious of our special role being in Switzerland when the mothership is in San Jose. So every year we had a couple of folks who wanted to go to um, uh, uh, to the US, and so we had the um, we 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 used the motivation for proactively help the motivation of people to actually go into the U.S. and and have knowledge in different pieces of the organization. Um, we consciously help the company. We we were coming from an open source, so uh, in the first two years we help encouraged, cajoled, supported, accelerated uh, the use of modern tools. So, you know, for developers, very essential. Um, and then we, we we dragged out the integration until we actually had the tools in place. And then we came in there. So very consciously, you take a look at the opportunities. Now, is the tools really important or not? It's a bit a piece. It's sort of having people in the US, does that make or break? It's a bit in piece. But it's very consciously approaching it, realizing where you're at, but also realizing what the end goal is. And the end goal is good integration, good meshing of the opportunities that we have, and uh, uh, very active in the, in, in the U.S. customer base. Again, that's uh, for us important, uh, representing, taking advantage of having a development center in Europe. So we created the visit the factory. Uh, we have a special program where customers can come and smell the oil and come into the Basel factory and uh, it's not like we have oil, but I think they can ask intellectual questions uh, that, that the marketing material doesn't cover. They can go to any depth. And so you create programs to get to, to mesh with, a, with, with the strategy of the organization to share the information. And that worked out. Uh, and, and then be nimble, right? Like, uh, like uh, uh, the constructions 
move with the flow. See, look the opportunities, yep. grab the opportunities when you have them. It, it, what you do as a startup continues as you're in, in, in the other shape, right? You be open to the opportunities, grab them, go consciously after them. It, it, the fire keeps on burning and uh, the opportunities are still there. Uh, go look for them. And I think it worked out. It's, it's, it's keeping on working out and it's fascinating and it opens up new opportunities and yeah, be nimble, be take it very consciously and be proactive. Don't Absolutely. let it happen to you. Right. Makes sense. So you also mentioned the, the Basel factory. So today Adobe employs a low three digit figure of people in Basel. And I actually wonder why is Basel still so an important part of Adobe's success and also product nowadays, 10 years after the exit? That's all. Uh, no, uh, seriously. Um, I think that the point that I mentioned earlier, that the realization that the products that we do get created through humans and humans' creativity is dependent on their well-being and uh, common respect. Um, I think that is a, um, a core essence of Adobe. And so I think there is a high level of respect of the experience and the motivation and the drive of the team. And I think the, as, a, as a company, we cherish the individual and their ability to create in whatever form. And the team here, in, 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 I think and we have multiple uh, of the acquisitions. Uh, so the Go acquisition is still in Hamburg uh, that uh, you have. So I think Adobe tries to consolidate when it makes sense. So we have a couple of uh, areas where there is war or where there is political instability. There we actually help folks to, to relocate. Um, we we do want to make sure that we have know-how in the relevant regions. Uh, we do want to make sure there is an economic uh, uh, distribution. So you want to balance multiple objectives. Um, but I don't think there... Uh, Adobe is, is looking at growing and through creativity and creating the, the product and the innovation. And so therefore, respecting the people, uh, encouraging the opportunities... For, as I said before, right? And I think that's interesting, but also uh, respecting the knowledge and the production capacity that's that's there. Got it. So when they software started, you know, there was basically, or still is to a certain degree now with Adobe in Basel, the, the cluster for content management in Basel. So I also wonder, what do you see as the future and also the importance of Basel in the future? Where will the Basel area go in terms of importance for a startup or also economic uh, ecosystem? I, I think Basel is interesting. Um, uh, we do have a folks that are coming from us from the Alsace. We have folks that are coming from us from the Black Forest and it's not St. Nicholas or we haven't been able to hire him yet. Uh, uh, but, uh, and, and for those that are not of Germanic background, actually, uh, Google or check out Wikipedia, the story on the 6th of December of St. Nick. It's a different story. But um, but I think the that gives a diversity of education, a diversity of language, a, a, a diversity of, uh, of, of cultural upbringing uh, that is an advantage uh, that, that we can see, especially because we have customers uh, which only speak French or customers uh, when I start to speak my version of Hochdeutsch, 
uh, they think I'm speaking uh, Swiss German until I really switch into Swiss German. And uh, so um, I, I, I do think the language, especially with some customers, is an advantage. Uh, I also think that the um, there, there is different economic uh, opportunities that you have here um, to, to take a look at. So there are some local advantages. Uh, we do have, uh, uh, we're very close to Zurich. And, you know, if you look in U.S. time zones, uh, also to uh, to Lausanne, we have quite a few folks that uh, um, are working for us here in Basel who actually finished their studies uh, at EPFL, not just me, but uh, a couple of folks. So, And we have folks that come from the outside. So the future for Basel, I think, as you look at sort of as a technology hub, I don't think will overtake Silicon Valley uh, any of the next weekends, um, being realistic. On the other hand, I think there is a, a interesting diversity um, being within reach, but uh, at, a, at a different setup. It's a differentiator um, from, a, from a global Basel area. And then I think if, as you look at it for Adobe, um, I have uh, picked this up on the last day when the office was open, sort of the center of excellence for the Adobe uh, Experience Cloud. I think we are a, a know-how center. And so I do, we, we, there is a lot of innovation coming out of the team here. Innovation happens worldwide, but I think I do see for the, as far as I can look into the future, that I think this leverage of the existing experience of, of having tried many variants, having succeeded and failed, that that experience allows us to do order of magnitude better innovation than anyone else out there. And so I do think that gives us uh, uh, and, and the whole team a great future, gives Adobe a great future. And then also having a, a knowledge center uh, in the center of Europe, which is a relevant market. So don't get me wrong with the US market, but I think it is a relevant market. I think it also helps with the time zone differences if you want to offer a 24-7 service. So there's multiple advantages uh, to having uh, this location. And we're not the only technology vendor uh, who's here. There's quite a few in Switzerland. Uh, again, not as many as the Valley, but you know, it's it's not zero. So we're we're quite comfortable. We're excited. I think we're excited at looking into the future. And I think if you look at the the drivers, right, the the, the fundamental drivers of the continued automation of the uh, artificial intelligence, or even if one of the products that we have we call screens, which is the uh, Information on digital screens, touch screens these days is a little bit less uh, motivational, but I think you can still interact with them um, without touching them. I think, and, and there you have the price that keeps on dropping according to Moore's law. So there will be more and more of them, which means you want to have more and more of your experiences projected there. You have store and store opportunities. Uh, so I I think that the with, with these changes that we're seeing in these special times with COVID, the digital channel is just going up. And how do I get the right content in the right time to the right audience is a challenge for many of the folks out there, of the enterprises out there. And I think we're excited in helping them. And as we get more automation, as we get more intelligence there, we can take out some of the mundane tasks. 
and more and more of them. To give you an example, we uh, in February we had we were monitoring twenty seven thousand um, uh, activities, and now we are at over a hundred thousand, right, in just a couple of months on that system. And so nice. you, you have an infinite growth of stuff that we can monitor and take automated corrective action or suggestions. And I think that that uh, the snowball effect of being here and then accelerating it will just go on. And I don't see the end of it, uh, right? And so that's cool. I don't think there is a there. There is. I don't think we're we're there, we're, we're head limited. Uh, there is so much more that our companies and 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 small businesses, large businesses want to do, and we enable them through reducing the friction, helping content velocity, helping getting the message out, so that the offering can get to the needed, that the government service can get to the person. Well, and and there is there there. I don't know. It's infinite, infinite opportunity. Uh, we do have a total addressable market of a couple of billion, but I think there is also a dark space to the market beyond that. So I, I, I'm, I, I love it where we can go. I love sort of the location in Basel, and I love all the locations that we have worldwide, which add their cultural diversity and help us run that around the clock. So very bullish on the team and uh, very opportunistic, uh, opportunistic. I, I think there is a lot of opportunity. Opportunistic is the wrong word. A lot of opportunity uh, in the Basel area. Absolutely. So there's a bright future ahead for the Basel area. But of course, that also raises the question, what's next for you personally? Another 10 years at Adobe or what are your plans as a, an individual person? Well, you know, if I can keep on changing industries, that's quite enticing. So uh, um I, I think the it's 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 uh, it's always a good question, but I think right now the opportunities to change the world are uh, are fascinating. But then again, as you said, you know I'm intellectually curious, right? Um, the there's quite a few uh, projects that are interesting. There is a couple that I'm coaching um, on the uh, to help them in in different areas. So uh, there there is enough intellectual questions out there in the world to to keep me busy. And to keep the team busy, and as I said, I think the opportunity on the on the product is there, and I think on the the region, I think in Switzerland we have a lot of un, untapped uh, opportunities that uh, have some intellectual challenge. Right. So to also keep you busy until the end, we have two last question sections for you. The first one is: Are there any personal resources or gadgets that you can recommend to our listeners? That can be books or blogs, but also uh, technical things like an app that you like to use or a specific tracker. I see you have one on your wrist. Um, what tools and gadgets can you recommend to our listeners? Well, I, you're right. I think the Fitbit is sort of my uh, my keeping me honest, because otherwise, if I get too intellectually uh, um, grounded, um, uh, the I get to actually get going, and so I think the balancing all the pieces uh, keeps the mental health uh, going much better. Um, the and then for me, it's also personally, it's also getting you know the, the whole biorhythm of the system uh, that you have that that is helpful. I think the if you look at Adobe, we have quite a few tools uh, that yeah, are cool to use. I'm you know uh, Photoshop users myself, but we also have Photoshop Lite. There is Camera. I think check it out. Uh, there is a lot of stuff you can do on the creativity side. I think on the on the personal side, I'm an Evernote new user and I use Mind Map. I think both of those for taking quick notes when I'm on the go through any device uh, to sort of then have the follow-up afterwards. Um, generally, I like 
um, concepts. So I do read up uh, on uh, online and still books and, you know, previous generation. I actually have paper books. And what I'm looking for are interesting models. How to, to help, once you actually have those customer feedback, to put them into, uh, into perspective. Nice. So the very last part for you are five rapid fire questions. I give you either a short question or a selection of two to three options. And you have to make one selection or answer in one sentence. Are you ready? Sure. So the first choice, United States, Europe, or China? Europe with a US mindset. <laughs> I like that. That's a good one. Public or private company? I, you can learn from both of them and apply it in the other. Okay, fair point. Engineering or business? Both. Engineering without business is that doesn't get me doesn't get me excited. So I think the engineering for value is what matters. Yeah, the killer combination basically. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Allow myself to be even more audacious. <laughs> nice. And the last one, Basel area or Silicon Valley? The commute is a heck of a lot better here. So I'm I'm a Basel guy. Fair point. Jean-Michel, thank you so much. That was super interesting and also fascinating to see your energy levels. And it was just a lot of fun recording the session with you. Thank you so much for sharing the story. And we wish you and Adobe all the best with hopefully many more 10 plus years uh, for the future of innovation and product and business combinations. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Sylvan. And let me acknowledge that these are special times and our energy has to stretch to technology, innovation, startup, and our families. So, you know, I'm happy that after 20 years here at Adobe, I can keep on innovating. But for all of you, do pay attention to your health, to your families. Uh, I think that's important. So everybody, please stay well, stay safe. And thank you very much for having me and listening, if you're still listening. This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.